This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation and the Bunwarang and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of their lands, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Why, love forswore me in my mother's womb. And for I should not deal in her soft laws. She did corrupt frail nature with some bribe to shrink mine arm up like a withered shrub, to make an envious mountain on my back where sits deformity, to mock my body, to shape my legs of an unequal size to disproportion me in every part like to a chaos or an unlicked bear whelp that carries no impression like the dam. And am I then a man to be beloved? Mm, monstrous fault to harbour such a thought. Then since this earth affords no joy to me but to command, to check, to overbear such as are of better person than myself, I'll make my heaven to dream upon the crown. And whilst I live to account this world but hell, until my misshaped trunk that bears this head be round impaled with a glorious crown, and yet I know not how to get the crown, for many lives stand between me and home. And I, like one lost in a thorny wood that rends the thorns and is rent with the thorns, seeking a way and straying from the way, not knowing how to find the open air, but toiling desperately to find it out, torment myself to catch the English crown. And from that torment I will free myself or hew my way out with a bloody axe. Why, I can smile and murder whilst I smile and cry content to that which grieves my heart and wet my cheeks with artificial tears and frame my face to all occasions. I'll drown more sailors than the mermaid shall. I'll slay more gazers than the basilisk. I'll play the orator as well as Nestor, deceive more slyly than Ulysses could, and like a sinon take another Troy. I can add colours to the chameleon, change shapes with Proteus for advantages, and set the murderous Machiavel to school. Can I do this and cannot get a crown? Tut, were it farther off, I'll pluck it down.
Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Richard Gloucester from Act 3 of Henry VI, Part 3, read by our guest this week. She has been a mainstay of Australian stage and screen for the last 25 years. Her many awards include a Helpman for The Bleeding Tree, a Sydney Morning Herald Award for Anthony and Cleopatra, and a Green Room Award for The Tempest. She's currently playing Hermione Granger in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child in Melbourne, for which she also received a Helpman nomination. On TV, she's appeared in Reckoning, Jane Campion's Top of the Lake, Hunters, Time of Our Lives, Slide, Farscape, All Saints, and many more. Her film credits include Harmony, Gods of Egypt with Jared Butler, Disgrace, and Bad Eggs. It is my great pleasure to welcome Paula Arundel. Paula, welcome to Speak the Speech. (laughs) Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to have you here. Now, you chose Richard Gloucester. Please tell me why this amazing villain. (laughs) (laughs) I just think any mention of a thick wood or thorny forest is quite compelling. <laughs> yeah, you love that definitely. Yeah. I do. But this is the this is the 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 birth of a villain. This is kind of his opening the his opening announcement that he's going to become a villain. How do you play a, a scene like that? Um I think you can only approach it with what he says in that particular instance which is mm. I mean, he's driven by this um, desire for heaven on earth, and that's not something that any of us are alien to, that Mm. kind of um, desire, particularly since he sees so much of his physical manifestation on this earth as something um, in the eyes of others as being repellent. Mm. that he is unattached to anything physiologically to what one would perceive as a mother, I think is something that is often used in literature and and in plays in performing arts as um, something that drives a human being to forever feel accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's always that that goal is always on what you would call a a horizon, which you know, as, yeah. as we know, we can never quite you can never um, reach a horizon. There, sure. it's always yeah. out of reach. So the striving is, you know, the toiling that he kind of talks mm. about is forever there. So in terms of kind of going, oh, this is a villain. How do I play the villain? You know, how do I you know walk over and walk in a particular way and scrunch up mm. my face and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of doesn't have to be like that. Right. I, I find mm. his his um his motivations are incredibly human. But there's such a such a sense of grievance here. He it's like he wants to get revenge on the whole world for loathing him. And if only he'd had that love as a child, perhaps he would be a bit more satisfied and content. I think so. I think so. But I think it's kind of more, I mean, again, I kind of go, there's so many people in this society that that whether it's a crown that they turn to, whether it's drugs that they turn to, whether it's, you know, mm. to kind of call it villainous, you know, straight mm. up. Again, bringing it back to how I would approach a scene I wouldn't yeah. ever use the word villain. Sure. I think that's, you know, because I think that in our society we use it to um, as some kind of extremely general and massive blanket for 
um, people's behaviors without understanding yeah. where they mm-hmm. come from. And they are grievances, but again, it's like anybody who has something that they say, um, you know, I, the grass is greener, I'll, mm-hmm. I want, I want mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. But his grievances we can all relate to. Um, Absolutely. And, and, of course, as an actor, you can never actually think of yourself as a villain. You are completely justified in what you're doing as the character. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think he, he sounds like at the moment that he's extremely self-aware, like incredibly sure. self-aware. You know, mm-hmm. he's basically mm-hmm. <laughs> psychoanalyzing himself yep, no <laughs> doubt. straight up, which I think mm-hmm. is really quite interesting. I have no kind of gauge on the age of this man at all. Um, mm. He feels quite ageless. Yep. Yep. Which would be something really fascinating to look at as well in terms of how young you could go or how old you could go. I love the idea that he's so self-aware, that, that he tells us very plainly that he can act one way and feel another, smile and murder while I smile, cry content to that which grieves my heart. Um, when when Ian, they made the, the film starring Ian McKellen, they put those lines into the um, opening monologue of Richard III. And I think because I think there's such uh, a, a powerful description of Richard the actor. Richard is a consummate performer and is an actor, and I think that's why actors love playing him, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I've not spoken to anyone who's played him. I mean, you know, it's very, again, to have someone utter the words, I can add colours to a chameleon is um, incredibly enticing for an actor to just think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can take this in directions that no one's ever taken it before Mm -hmm. um and you know just as an artist you go that that's that's how do you walk into a room and go I'm going to bring human qualities to something that we didn't even know we had possessed these qualities Yes. Um, I find that really quite riveting I mean I've also just come off the back from watching Barry Jenkins um beautiful 10-part series called The Underground Railroad. And, you know, again, you kind of go, you want to look for motivation for a person that is trying to reach what they perceive as home when they feel like they are living in an incredibly cruel and Mm -hmm. unloved existence where you feel like just people are against you. It goes beyond that for this Richard he feels yeah. like nature, that the very, you know, it's the very gods themselves, you know, starting from not his mother, but starting beyond that, that everything turned against them. To have that kind of belief is, um, you can see how that, you know, to an outside eye poisons the, mm. the, um, the thoughts of someone, but not only poisons the thoughts, it's, it's not... It's, it's easy for us to stand outside and go, ah, it's poisoning the thoughts. But in the act of desperation, you know, again, you, you go, okay, if, if this speech was said, at, you know, about a, a hundred times faster than what I just did, like let's yeah. let's say that this is in uh, what you would call in, what do they call it in court when they say in an act of, um, it's like when you lose control. 
Oh, an act of passion or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah. The moment. And yeah. in the moment, mm-hmm. survival kind of, I will kick, it's basically a man saying that I will, I will uh, kick my way out of this. Uh, mm. I will, um, you know, with a force of violence that you've never seen before, I will mm. get under, out from under this um, yes. pressing oppression. And so mm-hmm. I find that really interesting to go. Imagine if you were to kind of look at this scene as something that was happening within five seconds. Yep. Theatrically, mm-hmm. I would find that a really fascinating thing to explore in the rehearsal room. Mm. Again, going back to how would you approach or play this scene? Again, going, well, what would it look like if someone just in these moments of fits of passion where, just blurted this yeah, scene Yeah, yeah, this mm. is soliloquies, which means they're, they're thoughts that they're shared with the audience, but they're, they're kind of moments of going in a split second. Mm. Someone mm. who feels attacked by the world attacks back. Yeah. Whereas the way that you read the speech, it was very, very considered and measured, but, of course, that is also a perfectly legitimate way to, to approach it as well. Well, it is, and I was also reading it. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, yeah, and, and it was for, for sense and so we could understand and follow yeah. the words, but I, yeah. but, but it's it's absolutely fascinating to think of it as something that he's been ruminating on for many, many years and finally he turns to the audience and says, right, now it's my time. Now now we're in a position where I can actually put everything into place. And, and he is a, he's someone who is in exile. Right. Because, and I say that yeah. because his idea of heaven and his idea of the crown, he mm. says is home. Right. And right. when people, Good. you know, that's in it, that's a, that's a thought pattern that we can understand as well. And well, actually, sadly, some of us can't. But that yeah. idea of feeling like the exile where you know you deserve to go home. Yeah. Again, yeah. there are all ways to kind of approach a character that doesn't come from this, you know, um, simplification of, of, of a person by calling them villainous. Well, Richard, Richard also, I think, in this scene, I mean, he's obviously, as you say, very self-aware, but he also has a very high opinion of himself. He he thinks that he can achieve anything, and obviously, that kind of power of power of positive thinking is is partly what drives him. He 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 can see no way that he can fail. Yes, only in that, only in that he knows that it's a horizon. I think, mm. I think, I think the question is still there. I think that. I feel like at the at the end when he says, "Do you know what I look? I think it's a challenge to himself. Can I? Can mm. I? Can I do all of this and not get a not get piece of yeah. you know, get a piece mm. of um of gold and that can ring around my head? Come on! Mm. And he's you know, yeah. it's like he's saying to himself, <laughs> "Come on, surely. I mean, if I can yeah. conjure all of this kind of power." Yeah. It's going to be easy to get walk in there and get the crown. Do you know? It's kind of go. If I can yeah. become a warlock, yeah. surely I can yeah. bring myself back to earth. Sure. <laughs> yeah, he really, he really encourages, talks himself up. I love that. That's mm. great. Mm. You have played some fascinating Shakespeare characters uh, in your career, Paula, and I'm sure there are many more Shakespeare characters to come yet for you, and we'll talk about that later. But early on, uh, you you graduated from NIDA in in the mid-'90s and then went uh, straight on the road playing 
hero in Much Ado. Mm. Now, now that is a tricky part because uh, Beatrice gets all the, the funny stuff, Beatrice and Benedict, and Shakespeare doesn't give hero many lines. How do you approach a part like that where you have a, a major presence on stage, but for a lot of it you're quite silent? I think you trust that, you know, I mean, I didn't know I would do this at the time and perhaps I didn't, I'm not quite sure, I can't remember, but I think you trust that your presence is enough. Mm. Mm. That's all you can ever really do. And I also think that Shakespeare's silences in many ways are quite, are quite fascinating. I mean, they do, in a way, draw attention to you at some at certain points where perhaps the audience thinks, well, she should say something now, and she doesn't. That in itself speaks volumes in many ways. I think it happens in Measure for Measure with Isabella. Uh, it, it happens with Hero and Much Ado and, and many of the other plays as well. I mean, Isabella gets so much more of a, a chance to chat. <laughs> No doubt, but at the very end, when she gets propositioned, she has no lines, and I'm always fascinated about how a production deals with that. Because, you know, does she cry and run off the stage? Does she accept the proposal from the Duke? Uh, what do you think about the end, ending? Of I that think play? it's wonderful because, you know, kind of going off what you said before, it's a chance for the audience to to start doing some thinking for themselves Good. and to discuss like afterwards it. anything that makes you kind of walk out of a room and have a discussion mm. about what's happened. I mean, that's the that's the kind of democratic function of theatre, isn't it? I, th- I think that's absolutely crucial. The, the audience have to bring something of themselves to the experience. Otherwise, they're just sitting back and, and um, you know, being fed mm, instead mm, of working. Mm, mm. And to feel yeah. the kind of rages that you hear, you know, something to sit with to hear with hero and you know have the rage that you feel um mm. for this woman and likewise with isabella in measure for measure to then yeah. you know kind of release mm. yourself from the magic of the play yeah. and you know the discussion also becomes about um how you felt mm. you know as mm. an audience member which is again like you, you can't you can't buy that after you played Hero in Much Ado in 96, your next production with Belle was in The Tempest, in Jim Sharman's production. Mm. Now, what are your memories of that production, which still uh, people still actually talk about it? Yeah. 20, 24 years later. <laughs> Gosh, really great memories, actually. Mm. Really, really great memories. Um my memories of it. <laughs> like Rachel Mazza, Tom Long. Tom Long, yeah, it was great. And, um, you know, sadly we've lost Tom since then. Um, yeah. We have Rachel. We have actually Rachel and Tom's son that they had together was yes. um, <laughs> from that play. They, they made on that production. They did, yeah. and they named him Ariel. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Which is absolutely beautiful, stunning. Mm. I love working with Jim. I think he's probably one of the most perceptive um, directors that we've ever had and mm. still have. Mm. Um, yeah. And I love working with him. I love, and John was extraordinary. And our relationship yeah. together was just so special. I remember how close we were. It was, yeah. yeah, I can't really, um, <laughs> I remember having to run down a ramp and flip up, what do you call it, epilepsy on, epilep, epilep, 
Yeah, on on the shoulders. On the shoulders, but they are actually turned into wings. So I looked like I was in a oh, cool. a nurse's outfit that then had these little wings that popped up when I said, "Okay, I'm off." Right. <laughs> to do whatever you need. And we had Peter Lamb played Caliban, who was extraordinary. Mm. He was such mm. a force on stage, Peter Lamb. Incredible. Mm. I miss him. Yeah, it was just really good times. We had Lani yeah. Tupu. I mean, it was incredibly. Yeah. Again, it was just such a kind of multiracial cast. Was that was that unusual for for the time, the mid nineties? I don't know. I didn't see a lot. I was doing a lot of theatre. I didn't see a lot of theatre. Okay. Um, but apparently <laughs> so. <laughs> Have you seen that change a lot during your career? Yeah, it's changed heaps. But but to be fair, only in the last few years, really. Yeah. Right. Um, the the major changes it's it's um where I'm kind of still in shock actually mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um I didn't realize I I think I was incredibly fortunate to work with directors that were thinking outside the box you know mm-hmm. I think of things like we did three sisters and it was myself Melita Jurizic and Rose Byrne right we all played sisters. And yep. we didn't. Yep. We didn't went in the rehearsal room. Bat and I led. I was mm. very lucky in that sense. I had to work with people like John Bell, who were always aware of it. Jim Sharman yeah. constantly. Yeah, right. Um, mm-hmm. Benedict Andrews. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. And every now and then, I worked with someone who was trying to do it and would hire me, and kind of not sure. I don't think they knew why. I think they were kind of going, and we should get her. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because she's that black one. (laughs) Yeah, right. And then getting me in the room and having no idea what made me tick or why I was. In your current production, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, I spoke with John Tiffany, the director, and he said, you know, the the role of Hermione Granger is is reserved for a woman of colour. But then I then I wondered, well, then why, you know, I just wondered why only that role? And then does that mean everyone else has to be white in that production? I mean, how, how does that work? I can, um, I can speak to um, something that I didn't know was happening in England on this. Um, I remember we did a production with Neil Armfield of um, David Hare play yeah. called Gethsemane, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. And... Um, in that, I played um, the aide to the prime minister, and she was, you know, described as incredibly strong, and you know, black a black woman. Mm-hmm. And I played this role, and I was thinking about it and trying to just find all the reasons because she never said what her nationality was. She never said, "Hey, you know, you can't do that. I'm a black woman." Like there were no lines that right. were kind of telling in any shape or form why Mm -hmm. had to be of color and we went out to dinner david Hare came to town and saw the show and then we all went out to dinner and i was fortunate enough to be sitting next to him and i said hey look why is monique um a black woman like what's Mm. that about because i can't seem to find any justification for it and he just said do you know unless we write it sometimes People just won't do it. It won't get cast, yeah. And I remember mm. being so shocked because in my mind, I've <laughs> been doing theatre for so long and I just thought, mm. surely you were kind of past all that. 
Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I was very like, oh, uh, right, okay. And again, um, you know, and perhaps for me it was a little bit blinkered, but because I had played so many roles that had nothing to do with being of colour, I sure. I was like, what the hell? Why is that mm-hmm. happening? Mm-hmm. So in some ways I think that that's possibly what they've done with them. Um, Hermione as well, going, you know, um, but, you know, that's a whole other discussion that I'd probably need a good hour to unpack Mm -hmm. with you. You know, Um, uh, uh, Harry Potter obviously has been a hugely popular play around the world in Melbourne until it got shut down because of COVID last year. And then you've had a couple of other shutdowns as well um, over the the course of the last uh, few months. What's it like working in a gigantic machine of a production like that, which has been done in other places around the world, and you're... Are you just slotting into a role, or do you have the freedom to make it your own? No. There are... I mean, yes to the latter part. There are Mm. um, certain places, certain times within the production you have to stand in a particular spot. Um, because there, are, otherwise you you might get killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there um, <laughs> there is magic performed in this show that is really quite extraordinary, and mm. and mm. lighting plays a massive part in the show. And getting all of that right, yes, you you have to do it um, in that sense. In the same way, you know, you would do a Robert Wilson show or something where there are certain mm-hmm. um, uh, just pieces of the production that you need to hit to make yeah. it work. But mm. within that, um, around that, I mean, my God, I'm watching performances at the moment of friends that I have been with since 2018, since we were rehearsing, and I'm seeing them pull stuff out of the hat that I'm like being gobsmacked nightly. Still at the new, new stuff. New, new stuff. stuff. Yeah, wow. Totally okay. new stuff. It's an actor's mm. piece. Without a doubt. And right. that very much, you know, I, I mean, one, I think that Michael Castle is, is got a great eye and mm. two, um, so the company is, you know, always looking for fresh and wonderful things. And two, I think that John Tiffany and Stephen Hoggett are incredible theatre makers and they are very mm. um, actor-centric, um, yeah. very mm. much into fresh completely fresh storytelling and they've always been encouraging of that um without yeah. coming in and going well you kind of have to say it like this no 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 yeah. no no, okay. no 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 yeah. and we have such a wonderful mix of of theater people and there are some musical theater people too who mm-hmm. i think we're learning off each other in terms of um you know there are things that musical theater students i realize are taught in terms of being covers and swings that I had no idea about. But, you know, the discussions that we have together, like uh, beautiful Claire Chiambakwe and I had an an amazing conversation after a Hermione scene last night talking about certain things that we're still thinking about within the scene. Mm -hmm. The books are so, you know, when people love Harry Potter, they, they read the books multiple times. And there's a reason Mm -hmm. for it. They are jam-packed with them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They are dense with kind of symbolism and history. And and so it's 
you kind of realize that, oh my God, it's impossible for us to stop finding stuff because you, you really mm -hmm. do keep finding things. And also on top of that, the world is changing so much. I mean, I've never been in yeah. a situation where you are able to do a, a show and then the politics and culture around you is, right. is in your society is changing and it's impossible for the audience and the performers to not bring that to the world and not be affected mm. by it. And mm. all of those things, I've never felt hamstrung in that company. And yeah. we, we, we try to steer away from the word machine because... It was never presented to us like that. Great, great. We didn't know we were in one. <laughs> You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. My guest today is Paula Arundel. Now, Paula, one thing that um, I heard from John Tiffany is that he was looking for actors who had experience with text experience with language, especially in Shakespeare. And I think you and Gareth, uh, Gareth, who's playing Harry, um, kind of uh, um, epitomise that, people who've had, who are steeped in, in language over their career. Is that, do you think that's an important part of the Harry Potter show? I do. And there are also, you know, having said that, there are also, it's it's written by, um, it's co-written by Jack Thorne. And so there are mm -hmm. moments in it that are quite filmic as well, because he yeah, writes right. for television mm -hmm. and film as well as theatre. Mm -hmm. So the play is not just language. I think there's a, it allows for subtext right. as well. It's, right. a, it's a wonderful mix in that way. Um, sometimes mm. it's, it's incredibly public and incredibly... Um, you know, language-driven, and then sometimes it's incredibly private and incredibly um, yeah. subtext-driven. And I think that mm. those things are what make it, again, so extraordinary to perform in mm. and, again, mm. keep us on our toes. But, um, you know, Lucy Golby, um, to, gosh, what she can do with language and her voice is... is is, yeah, is really terrific performer. Yeah, yeah, incredible. And she's done a lot. Of, she's done a lot of. She's done a few Bell Shakespeare Company shows as well. Her and her, yeah. her and yeah. Gareth came straight off Anthony and Cleopatra, actually. Yes, of course. Yeah, that's right. They were both in that. Uh, which, of course, you were in as well. Thank you for the segue. You've played Cleopatra for Bell Shakespeare. Yes, twenty years ago, two thousand and one. Oh with, uh, <laughs> with time flies uh, with Bill Zappa as Anthony, and you 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 entered uh, <laughs> entered that production. Uh, Bell Shakespeare sort of had this ensemble of of actors, uh, uh, Sean O'Shea and and Darren Gilshan and and uh, and that group. And you and Bill entered that production as Anthony and Cleopatra. What was that experience like coming into an established ensemble? <laughs> That was really fun. I remember um, actually the, the first first day we got up on the floor. Um, I, I, I do remember kind of making a. I, I brought in a piece of music which was um, history repeated. This kind of funked up version of it with Shirley Bassey, mm -hmm. and I said, "Can you play this?" And John was like, "Yeah." So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so we put that on, and then I, from my entrance, <laughs> and then I entered. And everyone kind of expected me to enter as some queen or whatever, but I kind of came crawling on like this, um, 
yeah, tiny right. tiger cub um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> with someone on my back because, mm. you know, mm. I've, well, one, I love the idea of um, letting the audience, you know, not know who the queen was once you met her, but also I just love the playfulness mm. of mm. her. And yeah, I have yeah. a feeling that's why, you know, not only did John go, oh, my God, I've got this lovely woman of colour who can now make me better. I think he just he also <laughs> knew that I was such a child at heart. Great. Um, Great. That I was able to bring a lot of yeah. that to it. And, again, he never he never said, no, I think she should be more regal here. Mm, um, mm, mm. There's he a let real, you play. He let you play. There's yeah. a real petulance to her that is, um, you know, I think is impossible to to not have and mm. I, you know again I was so young I really had no idea what I was doing um other than being <laughs> <laughs> other than taking all the liberties I possibly could which I kind of, of figured if you're a queen you could do that so in the rehearsal room, as well <laughs> I was doing that and Bill was incredible again he was just like mm. incredibly strong and handsome and his yeah. voice it just used to drive me like it thrilled me so much. And I remember we had this moment during performing where while he was saying a speech to me, I uttered the words, oh, my God, you're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he would have loved that. (laughs) And he was just like, did you just, like off stage, he was like, you can't just... (laughs) That's very sweet. I was like, but you are. Like I was just, you know, it was very easy to be in awe of this beast of a man. Mm. Um, How perfect perfect for the role. It sounds like you guys had incredible chemistry. I mean, you hear about certain people playing lovers and, you know, they can't stand each other off stage. That never works. I mean, that's wonderful. You had such great chemistry. No, we really did. We had had Mm. a tremendous chemistry. And I think there was something about us coming, you know, as, as kind of, artistic outsiders coming into that yes to that world it meant that we yeah we weren't part of the kind of language of what they were building as an ensemble at the time okay i think that was mm-hmm. they were still quite new i think it was only their second or third show as the ensemble i see yes yeah but yeah we run amok and i i do remember one actor saying oh how come she can run amok and <laughs> They were still. The they were still kind of asking, "Is it okay if I walk to here and put my cup down here?" Ah, uh, yes, uh, it yes, was that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was. It was very. Um, I felt. I felt incredibly rebellious, but I had a but lot that's of fun. that's great, isn't it? When you're young, you 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 kind of have the freedom to do those sorts of things as a performer. Do you find as you get older as a performer, you start to second guess yourself a little bit more? Or do you still have that freedom, do you think, no, on stage? No, no. I, no, that's, it's still there. I was very mm. lucky to then perform to work with Melita Jurizic, who, yes. I mean, first off, I want to say this, Darren Gilshanen was, was someone who in Much Ado About Nothing, mm. as I was shocked and dismayed and almost in tears because not everyone was doing warm-ups. Um, oh, yeah. And I yeah. was like mm-hmm. straight out of NIDA wondering why isn't everyone still excited and stuff. Mm-hmm. Darren was the first person that said to me, you know, he, he just took me aside and gave me this incredible speech about holding on to who you are. Um, wow. And hold yeah. on to your happiness and your passion. And, and I was, you know, I just felt 
So incredibly blessed to have him as my first, you know, friend and mentor in mm, a show. Yeah. And I thought he was just extraordinary. So I was very mm. lucky for that. And then I worked with Melita Jurizek. And I remember we when we were doing Three Sisters, we were in rehearsal. And we, Benno set up this improvisation afternoon. Mm. And Rose and I were kind of thought we were improvising fine. And then... You know, we, we just kept going and going and going. And at one point, Melita did this thing where she was pushing the bed and she was so kind of angry and she she was just pushing the bed and she pushed it further and further and she was pushing it all the way to right to the edge of the... And I, we thought she's going to stop when she gets to the edge of the um, the markup tape right. where yeah. the director's sitting and all the lighting and everyone's sitting there watching. And she just kept going and they had to get out of the way. They got... And <laughs> in that moment, I went, oh, I hadn't, I thought I was quite daring. And and so in that moment, Melita gave me the greatest lesson in the world of just, you know, this is, when you say this is our space, this is our space. Mm. And just mm. how far you can go with that. And she yeah. was very instrumental in teaching me the privilege that it is for um, everyone who witnesses performers' work that it's a privilege mm -hmm. for people to mm -hmm. watch us work, not the other way mm -hmm. around. Um, so that those two people um, stay resonating in me. Yeah, yeah. And again, mm -hmm. to have directors who always allowed for that to happen without mm -hmm. kind of going, what was that? And demanding afterwards explanations. Like that's... Yeah, just allowing you to create the create the part, create the character. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember when you first encountered Shakespeare? What was it that first lit that spark for you as a child, if at all? Look, I, I didn't go near it as a child. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't read my first novel until I got to NIDA. Right. I don't think I'd... I feel like I hadn't even heard of Shakespeare until I got to NIDA. So then what was it at night that, that turned you on to Shakespeare? So I didn't like it when I first heard it. I okay. didn't understand what anyone was saying. And I remember mm -hmm. we had this particular tutor and he was saying, he was talking about Shakespeare and he, there was this word and I said, I'm sorry, I just, I don't know what you're talking about. Yep. And he said, well, and I said, what, what's this word? And he said, go home and look it up. And I was just like, well, well, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm gonna go home and look it up. You're teaching. I can't go. F I don't know what you're talking about. And he was like, "Well, go home." And, look. Mm. and I had a massive fight with him. Okay. A massive fight with him, and I was so upset. Anyway, and I went and spoke to um, Keith Bain mm. about it because mm. he was my person. Um, mm. He was wonderful. Yeah, mm. and I just I didn't know what to do, and. Mm. He gave me this speech about the three T's, which was talent, technique, and temperament. Wow. And he said, you know, you've got the talent. We'll teach you the technique. But temperament's something you need to find within yourself and, you know, deal with. So I went off and thought about it, and I was just like, well, I'm not going to let this man then ruin this okay. this this person that everybody here seems to think is the most amazing thing in the world. <laughs> sure, yeah. And so I just started to kind of tune my ears in a, in a different way. And then mm. 
when I started to speak it, I, and I can't tell you which, which one it was. Oh, no, that's right. It was um, Juliet. Mm. Um, when I started to speak it, I found that that's the only time that it made sense to me. Yeah, right. That yeah. talking about it and picking it apart didn't make sense to me. That there's something about mm. saying it and not thinking at all that mm. then became mm. kind of like jazz. Mm-hmm. That you just you it started to kind of fill me with a, a force that I thought was, you know, greater than myself. Mm. Um, mm. That I was really quite thrilled by. Mm. And then we were asked to go and learn a speech, so I went and learned to be or not mm. to be. And um, and that's when I I got it because I truly understood. I came from a background that was not like anyone else's who I was studying yeah. with, so I totally understood what Hamlet was talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when I started to go, okay, I can... Um, I want to do this. And everyone expected that I'd want to go into film and that I'd want to sing and dance. And I was very much right. like, no, 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 no. I want to do Shakespeare and Chekhov. This is it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How wonderful. And you, you, you've you been doing it ever since. Mm. You, you've, you're definitely going to come back to Shakespeare, aren't you? I mean, you've done it throughout your career, through the 90s, 2000s. Uh, I think your most recent uh, production was uh, playing Titania in STC's Dream. Yeah, that was with Kip Williams uh, and that was a dream. With Kip. Uh, um, yeah. That was really good. I do want to come but, back to it. But you'll certainly it. come back to it. Well, yeah. the other day we have this truly extraordinary actor working with us at the moment named Ben Walter um, mm. He's a young guy who's just taken over the role of Albus, which is pretty much the lead of Harry Potter and the Cursed yeah. Child. And he's really quite something and a really nice guy. And I was talking to him about speeches the other day and mm-hmm. he was the one that started playing me all different speeches and he played me this one and I burst cool. and I just started crying. I was weeping because I felt mm-hmm. like I just come, I just loved it so much. And to sit with someone, I was sitting with him and Tash Herbert and um, Katie Jean and we were all just like in this little group. Um, mm-hmm. It felt like we were in some kind of, you know, cult for about... <laughs> 15 minutes as we were just going talking and they were just and they were talking about all the things that they loved about it and that's what excited me so much yeah Yeah. it's it's hearing Mm. other people talk about it i just that's like a a real balm to the soul Mm. Mm. because it does something to people and their, their their want to reach it is so i don't know it's really beautiful paula Thank you so much. I've just loved talking to you about you and about Shakespeare today. Thanks so much for joining me here on Speak the Speech. But before we go, mm-hmm. we've got the final five, mm-hmm. which is five quick questions and mm-hmm. five quick answers. Okay, <laughs> here we go. I think I know the answer to the first one, but let's do it anyway. Paula, which do you prefer, the lover, the villain or the fool? Um, I refuse to define any of them like that. So I would play all, I would, any one of them I would play as the other one if that makes sense. I'd, uh, yes, pl- I'd play I, it, it because does. I think you mm. cannot play a lover without being a villain, you, without knowing hate, without knowing rage, mm. without knowing anger, without risking your life or someone else's. I mean, that's love, isn't it? And certainly can't play the villain without being a fool in some way as exactly. well. Exactly. Yep. I love it. I love it. Paula, what's your most underrated Shakespeare play? A Measure for Measure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Who's your favourite artist you'd love to work with or you haven't worked with already? I would love to work with Dimitri Papanayou. Who's Dimitri Papanayou? He is an incredible Greek um, choreographer and he did mm. the Athens opening, if you want to know the, you know, his yeah, biggest yeah. huge mm. scale um, mm-hmm. work. But mm. his work is something and the way he approaches um, arts, performing arts is really um, something that I would love to immerse myself in and to work mm-hmm. with him. He's just he's the most beautiful man. Yeah. What is your dream Shakespeare role that you'd love to play? Um, Lady Macbeth. Oh, yeah. Have you not played Lady M yet? No. Okay. That that has definitely got to be on your list, Paula. That's mm. fantastic. And if you weren't in the performing arts, what do you think you'd be doing? Writing novels. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you write as well while you're performing? Mm. I do. Are you writing a novel currently? No. No? Okay. That's a big thing. Paula, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on Speak the Speech. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had so, it's been really beautiful. Thank you, James. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni, with special thanks on this episode to Justin Gardam. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform. <laughs>